I'm Gregory Shaw. I'm Isabel Faria. I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Practical Neoplatonism. In one of the early episodes, uh, back when I was still doing Machine Elf Radio before that podcast became Practical Neoplatonism, when I first had Greg on, we started talking about the sort of dream work group practice he does. It's a Jungian-based, he and a group of of, uh, uh, like-minded friends and colleagues come together, I think about once a month, to uh, uh, do this kind of group dream work where one person brings in a dream and they all imaginatively enter into it and ask a lot of questions about it and talk about it in the present tense as if they're in the dream and experiencing it together and they're visualizing it and trying to help uh, uh, the dreamer figure out, you know, Uh, certain elements of their dream. I haven't experienced it personally, although the reason I'm bringing it up now is that it kind of seems to me that even though Greg and and Isabel and I haven't officially discussed this, it seems like what we've started doing on our podcast together is, is very similar to that kind of dream work practice he does where Greg or Isabel or I bring in a paper uh, that one of us has written and we kind of use that as the seed material for uh, building uh, a conversation uh, around imaginatively together entering into one of the participants' uh, imaginative or uh, intellectual worlds. Uh, And so today we used my undergraduate thesis, which was titled um, Greek Allegory, Mystery and Meaning from Theagenes to Philo of Alexandria. And I'm going to upload it if anybody's interested in reading it. It will be on my academia profile at um, harvard.academia.edu slash Alexander Price, with just one word, Alexander Price. So if anybody wants to read it, it's there. But, you know, we start, we, we use that as kind of like the, the, um, the launch pad for our conversation, the, uh, the starting point. And uh, as we proceed in this episode, you'll hear like, uh, I, I'm actually working on my uh, master's thesis at the moment, which is, which, I, uh, which I'm going to be defending in uh, less than two days. And um, I've just, I've just been feeling a lot of frustration over the challenges I'm having communicating with my readers. And so I brought that emotion of frustration into this, uh, this episode and we started talking about it and, and really, uh, uh, use that to, I think, go into some really interesting places about, about, about God and the inexpressible and hidden realities and, and communication and self-expression and identity and images and, uh, and, and dreams and creativity and Ismaili cosmology and, Nietzsche and Sartre, as we're wont to do, um, and so uh, it's as much about my paper as it is about this great dream allegory that we're all trying to figure out together. It was really a wonderful conversation, and I felt I walked away from this talk especially with this wonderful sense of lightness, and uh, I hope you will too. Um, and it seems somehow related to what you're talking about with the social justice. And, well, at least liberation theology in South America was largely um, about a kind of a Marxist-driven, wasn't it? Yes. Um, liberation of people from oppression and that all, all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what and they were also – Gutierrez is very explicit about like the exodus in the Hebrew Bible is the model for human liberation in human history. And so that was really the claim that I was trying to tackle is like – Okay. Does human history fit this pattern of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible? Maybe. Maybe. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't have a title for it yet either. I'll just call it. Okay, let's just move on. Okay, I can tell you about the question that really struck me, and it, it's a little bit like what Isabel was asking about. What What do we mean by the terms that we're using? Mm-hmm. And. From about page 11 on, we, when you were introduced that Philo is using mystery language in his writings, yes, which he no doubt is, and, and all over the place. Um, and, and then at, at one point you say, um, in, in a way, he, the lang- his extensive use of mystery language in his writings, this is page 11, mm-hmm. 
in a way that is metaphorical yet heavily charged um, and it contains philosophical allegory um, and then at the bottom of thir- or 12 Philo is addressing a Hellenistic audience and speaking to them in terms that will appeal to them but at base this mystery is ultimately a metaphor Yeah. and um, you know when I read that I thought well what do you mean by metaphor um, and I, I'll just I'll just put my cards on the table in terms of the way I was wanting to read it. If we if we deny to metaphor an ability to be a vehicle of transcendence for the reader or the hearer, then it's just um, a kind of a conceptual marker as part of a mind game, sort of a mentally sort of constructed. Um, you could almost We'll say an artificial sort of con- construct. Um, that's one way to think of a metaphor, and and it no doubt is that at one level. But if it if the metaphor has the ability to initiate people, then it seems to be more than just a conceptual construct. It, that it that it that it's not limited to its conceptual uh, boundaries. That it um, functions like a real symbol. And that can be a portal to uh, another dimension of of who we are. I I don't know if I'm being particularly clear here when I'm saying that, but but that's what I'm wrestling with. I don't know. Does that make sense? Two two levels of metaphor, the shallow and and the deep, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Um, It reminds me a little bit of some conversations that I had at one point about poetry you know, especially like around, I guess, the 1950s, the modernist movement, like poetry started uh, uh, changing in a way that like uh, it, it used to be defined by meter and rhyme and the form. And yeah. then, uh, you know, artists started playing with that till it got to a point that the boundaries of poetry became very uh, um it, it it became almost meaningless to even to distinguish like anything could be poetry you know uh uh so 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 trying to define like is it just like that you hit return every once in a while that the that it's but then there's prose poetry you know so so one of the uh um uh definitions that i uh, kind of ended up really holding on to was the idea that poetry talks about something in addition to what's on the surface usually i mean it doesn't have to um, but uh, uh, but say that, say that again, please. Alex. That, that poetry often, and I think this for me, this is an essential part of the definition: is that poetry will speak about something in addition to or beyond what's on the surface. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you know, there's a poem about a flower, but everybody knows it's not about a flower. You know, yeah, yeah, and, okay. and yeah. That's what I love about it, and that's what. Uh, um, I, uh, one of the things that I find very uh, fascinating about it intellectually is like how you uh, indicate or um, you know f- leave flags in a, a work of writing that tell your reader um, I'm talking about something other than what I'm talking about, you know. And so, so, so yes. in in yes. uh, uh, now that we're talking about metaphor, you know, that's that's what's coming up in my mind as the this. Uh, um, uh, you know that a metaphor is is something that's about something other, something non-literal, something that's like beyond or in addition mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. symbol. You know the surface meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, go ahead, Isabel. Did you have something you were going to say? Um. Hmm. Well, I think what I find interesting about this and what you're saying about poetry also is. That um, with a lot of these people who keep claiming that, okay, we shouldn't use metaphor or metaphor is can also not only a pathway into the um, mystic gods, but it can also lead to impiety and all of these other things. Um, But at the end of the day, you do need metaphor in order to enter this. Mm -hmm. So... In order to have knowledge, you need metaphor, but metaphor continues to be treated as this thing that you shouldn't use at the same time. And who who says that we should not use it? Or what what or kind of concerns? Yeah. 
the part in the paper where you, I think it's they say something of I don't remember where it is. But. Oh, in, in Alex's paper, because I, I, I've forgotten where that is, mm-hmm. that we should not use metaphor. Is that correct, Alex? I'm not sure. Um, impiety. Let's see. The only thing that I can think of offhand that uh, that I might have written about is, um, gosh, his name is escaping me. There was the Greek playwright who was uh, charged with impiety, but it was because they said he had revealed the secrets of the mysteries in his. Right, in right, some of his right. That was Euripides. No, was it Euripides? Uh, Aeschylus. Anyways, there was someone who was on trial for impiety, uh, for for allegedly having um, uh, he, uh, revealed profane some, the yes, mystery. Yes, yes, yeah. and um, I I find that really fascinating because uh, you know we're not entirely clear exactly what 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 he was allegedly had profaned, but just the fact that it could have been ambiguous if he had profaned them or not, I find very interesting. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, as if they were like certain sort of objects that that he was um, threatening to reveal mm-hmm. with his words, like they were things. Um, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I kind of, I sort of, yeah, I'm not entirely sympathetic to the notion that you could ever profane the mysteries like that. But, but um, maybe that's just my uh, temperament. You know that I'm I'm not too worried about that. Um, I don't think that mysteries, if they're real mysteries, can be profaned, I guess. And that that might seem a little naive of me to say that, but that's sort of my um, my tendency of thinking about this. I want to go back to where you refer to use of metaphor again, mm-hmm. because it seems like, well, with Philo, he's, 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 he's Describing the Torah as filled with oracles, and yeah. and um, he really thinks of them as oracles, and it's I a think oracular... even I even think he thinks of the Torah itself as an oracle in the sense that it was like Moses is a prophet who received you know this word from God in the same way that like the the oracle at, at is it Delphi Delphi yeah. might yeah. have uh, received you know uh, uh, some some divine words. You know, he's making a pretty explicit parallel. And not only did did the Torah in Hebrew uh, get revealed through Moses, but the Septuagint and the 70 scholars oh, yes, 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 yes. all received the divine mind of Moses and transmitted it in, in their translations of the Hebrew into the Greek. I mean, yeah, the biggest bullshit story in the world, but it's a great story, you know? I mean, it doesn't matter to me that it's unbelievable. It's the sort of the mindset that he brings to it, that he really feels like the Greek Septuagint uh, of the Bible is inspired. And so it gives him license to, you know, interpret every word and and find hidden meanings because it comes right out of the divine mind. Um, So I guess that leads to a bigger question of, are scriptures and oracles and these things, are they just vehicles for human beings to be able to step into a deep part of themselves kind of like in a Jungian sense to tap into the unconscious and and make the archetype come alive for them are they just using these things as vehicles to do that Um, it seems like that's possible one way to interpret it and I don't mean to to say that there isn't a divine okay but um it seems like that's what human beings have been doing. Mm. Whether it's with the Bible or whether it's the Chaldean oracles or it's with Plato's text, which the Neoplatonists thought was divinely, you know, inspired by Plato and, and all of this. It, they're using the texts as a vehicle of transcendence for themselves. That's what it seems like is happening. It's an interesting question what the intention was, but uh, I, this was uh, – um... Not a connection that I actually was intending when I started talking about it, but the connection with poetry is actually there in the sense that, like, uh, the poets were considered to be inspired by, uh, divinely inspired by the muses, you know, and and that that was one form of communication that, uh, uh, you know, the divine realm would speak to um, humans uh, in in poetry, 
which is something that you do see also in the come up in the Hebrew Bible whenever uh, God is speaking directly, it, uh, rather than you know a narrator narrating story. Usually, God's uh, uh, direct speech appears in the text in the form of poetry, and I don't know. Mm. How, how you know the type I was thinking is, might be recent uh-huh. precisely about the poet as you're talking about it and there's this passage from Emerson that I recently came across yeah and I think it really relates to what you're talking about so I just want to read a sentence or two from Emerson please, please. okay he says the poet knows that he speaks adequately only when he speaks somewhat wildly or quote with the flower of the mind, which comes straight out of a Neoplatonic term for the sort of above the uh, above the thinking mind, not with the intellect used as an organ, but with the intellect released from all service and suffered to take its direction from its celestial life, or as the ancients were wont to express themselves, not with the intellect alone, but with the intellect inebriated by nectar. Wow. Now that's that's Emerson. Yeah. And that's what the poet does. So he or she is, in a sense, a vehicle for some sort of higher awareness, a higher mind or something. That's how Emerson sees it. One of my classmates also pointed out recently in a different context that the word poesis is is related to creation, to, to make mm-hmm. it, making, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, in, yeah. in the Hebrew Bible, you know, the uh, uh, creator is creating through speech, acts of speech. You know, right, right, and, and the world itself is uh, the book. You know? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's similar yeah. to um, I think the uh, on page nineteen, where you quote Philo saying that he could, he had uh, maintained the ability to see through the eyes of his soul. Uh huh. Um. Yeah. I think you hear for he says, so behold me daring not only to read the sacred messages of Moses, but also in my love of knowledge to peer into each of them and unfold and reveal what is not known to the multitude. I love Philo. He's so up there. Uh, oh, what what um, footnote is on that page? Because I, I made mine single space so it would be easier to um, print it. Uh, what footnotes on that page that you quoted from? Okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what do you think's going on with Philo, Alex? Um, one of the things that I was so interested in, uh, you know, and I, I do talk about this uh, in the paper uh, that. Um, one of the things I was particularly interested in was the way he was taking Stoic um, literary criticism uh, and the way that the Stoics read Homer as an allegory, as a Neoplatonic allegory for the soul's journey, like the, the Odyssey as the allegory for the soul's journey through the material world back to transcendental reality. Uh, he took that, uh, uh, that way of reading the text and applied it to the Hebrew Bible um, in a way that was very influential, especially I think in Christianity afterwards, that uh, oh, yeah. all, that all of these prophets were, uh, in his view, uh, allegories for virtues. But each of them, you know, were one character who that all we all you know have all of, all of the characters inside of ourselves, and this is a drama that is that tells the story of of the soul's journey, you know, back to its source, um, and. Uh, Gosh. It's an internalization of of the Bible into a kind of a um, a tool to read it as a psychological sort of map, almost. Mm-hmm. That, that's basically what you're describing. Yes, and I I basically find that being I tend to not be a literalist, but much more interested in in that approach. I, I I'm glad that they did that, and it makes it more interesting mm-hmm. to me. Um, and Philo clearly laid the groundwork for all of the Christian allegor- allegorists. I mean, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all of them, they just, they're in the wake of what Philo did. Philo did it. And Philo, you're right, he comes out of that stoic, you know, uh, reading of the Homeric 
stories so as to make them worthy of God, you know, make them worthy of the divine, because literally they're not. He also inherited from the Stokes. I just think this is an interesting um, what uh, piece of trivia that the the uh, the, the uh, commentary you know technique of going line by line and commenting. He is something yeah. he also brought into um, like the Judeo Christian uh, traditions from from the Stoics. Like that was a Stoic way of commenting on Homer. That that now I think I would exclude uh, um, uh, associated almost. A hundred percent with like biblical commentary, but that came from uh, from Stoic literary criticism. So it's their way of reading a text yeah. that that Philo um, borrows. Their technique, you could mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. and their uh, reading of their own, you know, hidden secrets in the uh, texts backwards in time into the like saying, "Well, because this is true." Uh, yeah. For us, yeah. it was you know true. It was the author's intent all along, you know. Uh, right, right, uh, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a kind of a, you know, we would say, oh, that's just you know, they're just projecting their own thinking backwards. But yeah. um, what they projected backwards is pretty creative. Very. Often. Yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons I think that Proclus isn't studied more is because some of his. You know, allegorical interpretations are so ridiculously over the top that right. you know people just can't take him seriously. <laughs> no, I know because it doesn't sound like they can't believe that's what Homer could have meant. Yeah, or even what Plato would have meant in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, Proclus calls Plato the hierophant of the whole universe. You know, our mis- our teacher of mystagogy mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I mean, come on, that's not really what Plato saw himself as doing in his time. But that's how the Neoplatonists imagined him to be doing wherever 800 years later. And one way that I uh, saw this connecting back with some of the conversations we've been having in the first uh, uh, few episodes was uh, with the idea of the Quora being something that exists outside of language and yeah. you know and you you mentioned it as being like uh, uh is it itself somewhat dreamlike or is our is our uh, connection with it dreamlike uh but there's this dreamlike quality um that i think poetry and uh i don't know mysticism both share where uh uh, uh it seems like there's a there's an idea here that that communications like even if you can't know the Quora or, or you know that ultimate reality directly the the communications that happen between uh you know people within uh i guess the logical reasonable rational world and the beyond like take on this uh cryptic um almost magical quality yeah yeah well, it's almost as if the discourse and the techniques that these people like Philo or even the Stoics or the Neoplatonists uh, use uh, are somehow rooted in their own, call it their own immediate experience of some Korah-like reality that they're trying to convey their, they're giving birth to something from their own deep well. And they use all of these techniques of, you know, allegory and, and etymological stuff. But it must, I'm biased to think that they're having some sort of powerful experience. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you refer on that same page mm-hmm. with a footnote 47, and that's how I'll refer to it. Yeah. Because um, for me, it's page 14, but it's probably different in, in the different reading. But there's a paragraph that begins, as we've seen here. Mm-hmm. The deeper allegorical meanings which Philo found hidden in the verses of Scripture were often acquired by him in a mystical fashion that bore parallels to the prophetic reception of divine oracles. Yeah. Acquired by him in a mystical fashion. I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to grope at wondering about. They were acquired by him in a mystical fashion. Mm -hmm. 
um, I don't know what else we can say about something like that, you know, but that's how you put it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I think from, uh, I guess, a post-enlightenment viewpoint, we might be inclined to ask questions about the legitimacy, like was it real or was it imagination? But uh, but it has this kind of creativity to it that I think, uh, um, you know, there's another way of looking at it of just like, you know, it coming from a place that's, uh, um, uh, I don't know, uh, super rational maybe, that you know, just outside of, uh, that, that maybe like creativity and imagination are uh, perfectly acceptable uh, methods you know for 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 making contact or or for you know receiving the uh uh the signals there's no other way that's my opinion i i think the rationality i mean and this is my bias okay so i'll just say it plainly so that at least you can push against it or or that yeah it is our imagination but oh, i think there's um I think it's in uh, Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, the play. Um, she's on trial, and, and the Inquisitor says to her, how do you, how do you, why do you think God is speaking to you? How, how do you know it's not your imagination? And she said, can God speak to us in any other way? Mm. You know, I mean, that's the other side of it. Um, the imagination is the vehicle yeah. through which we get into that super rational um, or pre-rational or more than rational awareness um do you know this essay by uh i think uh henri corban uh, yeah about which one it's, there's one about ismaili um mm-hmm. cosmology that yeah. talks about it's been very enormously influential where he talks about the imaginal realm in yes. in israel ismaili uh philosophy or cosmology where like in, in, in some islamic uh um conceptions of the universe the imagination actually exists in a real place like it is a realm that is uh uh real in its own way you know the way that our material world is you know our visible reality here here that there is another um level of reality that that you know he calls the imaginal realm that uh um the imagination lives there but it's also real you know and it has real consequences (laughs) Yeah, I am aware of that Corban stuff. Um, I used to read Corban a lot to help me understand what Iamblichus meant by imagination. Oh, really? And, really? And the, and the, oh, yeah. Corban was a tremendous help to me because he pretty much um, uh, absorbs a lot of that theurgical um, kind of heightened imagination of the later Neoplatonists, and it flows right into the Sufi authors that he's uh, exploring. And the imaginal world is the world that that connects the physical world to the noetic or the intelligible world. And without the, we've really lost the imaginal in in our contemporary world. Yeah. You know, with art, it's just um, inside the mind or out in the world. There's no third place, and the imaginal is that linking, bridging world that is a real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Corban calls it the imaginal. Mm-hmm. Um, the mundus imaginalis, is he, I think that he, he puts the Latin on it. Yeah, Corbin's. Uh, I've been really influenced by Corbin. I, I mean, I've read the essay, but like, I don't know if I've really uh, uh, gotten more out of it than just that insight. Like, I just felt like there was a, a huge uh, uh, field of conversation that was beyond my, you know, understanding. That I that I felt like there was a lot more to the essay than I was able to really dive into. But I know that it's been enormously influential, if nothing else. Yeah. This also Have makes you heard me... of Corban or anything, Isabel? No, no, I haven't. But okay. it is reminding me of, um, in a different direction, I guess, of Nietzsche's on truth and lies in a non-moral sense. I don't know if you guys have read that. Uh-uh. Where he basically talks about how uh, the world is basically made up of metaphors even the world that we consider to be um true no matter what especially in science that the more questions you start asking the more the language becomes metaphorical and if you ask how cells work or anything like that then you start saying well one cell 
like self-destructs or things like that when you can't say that a cell actually is self-destructing. That's sort of a metaphor because a cell can't choose to self-destruct, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, scientists use metaphors all the time right? to, to try to communicate um, what they're wrestling with. And they don't even know what matter is. You know, they still can't explain it. Um, you know, the quantum theorists and stuff, they, they don't know what matter really is. They just have descriptions of how it moves and acts and that sort of thing. But what is it? We don't know. They don't know. And, and they have all kinds of weird language like wormholes and things like that. Oh, yeah. And, and they can get away with it because they're scientists. But if people in the humanities talked about, well, this is the wormhole of the poet going to a trend, we'd say people would say you can't talk about a wormhole. <laughs> you you can talk about it at divinity school, but but uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but okay. we mostly just talk to you know each other here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so okay, so when when Philo is acquiring uh, the deeper meaning um, in a mystical fashion. I guess what I would be inviting you to think about, Alex, is that maybe he goes into Corbin's imaginal realm. Sure. And, and that's where these symbols can really be uh, revealed and unpacked and experienced mm-hmm. in a more direct way. Um, and that links him with the, the divine mind that Moses himself was able to, to receive and transmit. Because I think Philo believes that Moses really received the noose itself. And then channeled it, um, and uh, which is kind of amazingly cool. I mean, it's sort of it's very Platonic and Pythagorean, yeah. and and yet very traditionally. Uh, I mean, he's such an interesting Jew. I mean, Philo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and what you say also connects it to what we have been saying about the Kora, uh-huh. as in as this place where it's so ambiguous, you could interpret it almost as a very hyper-ambiguous metaphor of something that we don't understand. And by attempting to understand it, you end up creating something, as in the poetic language and the verb poeo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So you're suggesting, Isabel, that that our accessing the Kora or, or letting the Kora access us or however we want to imagine it results in our, our trying to articulate what it is that we're getting from that connection and that's the very act of being creative in some fundamental way right which which um which is a poetic um activity um which is a creative activity poiesis uh, mm-hmm. poiein to create um and especially with, uh, I guess it really works with words because we think of poets as wordsmiths, but it's any kind of creativity, really. Mm-hmm. It also makes me, I'm also thinking about how, you know, it's it's uh, a sort of space or realm where there aren't right and wrong answers. You know, it, it doesn't work that way, that there's uh, true and false in the same sense. Um, it's something that I, I've just been... Um, a little frustrated with about some of the writing I'm doing now where I want to uh, be doing something artistic and um, uh, a a lot of readers have been coming back and saying, oh, this isn't, you know, what uh, academic writing is supposed to look like. And I'm like, that's, you're missing the whole point that I'm trying to, you know, do something artistic that that isn't about like, you know, conforming to the uh, traditional rules. But uh, 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 yeah, th- that frustration I'm feeling is related to this this idea that there are right and wrong and true and false and and uh, and that's what the whole uh, business of understanding is all about. <laughs> Excuse me for being so blunt, but those assholes—they're—they're they're really they're really thwarting uh, your deeper engagement with the material by saying you shouldn't be uh, tapping into your creative voice on it because. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, during this three-day conference, um, one of the moments that was the highlight for me was when Mark Jordan, who is a really, really brilliant thinker and, and speaker and writer, um, he was talking about how um, the uh, apophatic dimension of things, which is the you know the negative theology, 
um, where you can't speak about the mysteries. It has to be rooted in a cataphatic or um, you know, positive theology, and using that kind of theological language. And um, we all want the apophatic, the mysterious, the deeper, the spiritual, but it has to be rooted in something that, you know, that's more concrete. And when we asked him, well, how do you, um, how do you communicate uh, that spiritual, that apophatic, without getting caught in, in making it into a thing, into making it, you know, a kind of a positive truth, as if you can count on it, measure it, you know, in an objective way, when it really isn't. He said um, he thinks that religious studies students, theology students, should be encouraged to um, take courses in creative writing. Um, and that that's, if they learn how to be creative writers, they'll learn how to be better theologians. Well... And, I definitely think uh, academic writing could use some more, uh, 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 you know, poetry in it too. Well, and I think he's absolutely right because when they, it's not science where you're measuring things and, you know, adding up the number of widgets to make an argument. It's you're entering into a kind of a, a poetic insight that a tradition has laid down, and either you can enter into it, and and bring it to light, or you can just be a stranger to it. And I think a lot of academics remain strangers to the very subject that they should be uh, illuminating. That's my bias. It also brings up the issue of communication, you know, of like, uh, yeah. uh, I'm, talking, I'm talking about my own feelings of frustration and like that frustration is that like, uh, you know, whatever interior uh, reality or message or experience I'm trying to uh, communicate or, or, or uh, to, to uh, um, inspire or, uh, uh, you know, to help other people, facilitate, you know, to facilitate in my readers isn't happening, you know. Um, uh, it reminds me a little bit, there's this uh, uh, beautiful, it's not a hadith, hadith kutsi is what it's called. It's like the hadiths from the Prophet Muhammad are, are the, his own sayings, um, mm-hmm. but the hadith kutsi are sayings that were from God that were transmitted, you know, outside of the Quran. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a hadith kutsi where uh, the prophet said that, um, uh, you know, God said, "I I was a hidden secret it, that longed treasure. to be known." Yeah, I wanted to be known. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, That's why I created the world. Yes, yes. So yeah, yeah. So, so it rem- like the frustration that I'm talking about reminds me of that, like. Uh, uh, almost like infantile experience of being uh, uh, a hidden secret and just like feeling that you know you want somebody to be able to uh, perceive you well I'm not saying I'm not responding to that because I don't value it I value it so much I can't find the words to really respond to what you're saying I think that's a huge thing that you you're sharing um that that's a feeling that it's a really powerful feeling um more power to you to keep feeling that i do feel like it's probably quite universal to the feeling of just being misunderstood even you know yeah yeah but also to be able to characterize your being misunderstood in the form of that hadith oh yeah (laughs) it it gives it gives it a little bit of resonance and depth that 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 you sense that in yourself, and and you want to you want to know it yourself, you know. It's not just, it's not like you know this thing and you're struggling how to articulate it. It's like struggling to articulate it helps you know it, in a sense. Do you, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. And um, another thing that it's. Uh, uh... Uh, Isabel has uh, looked at you know my thesis drafts that I've been working on, and one of the things that that I've been talking about is uh, what I call like a, a war over images, you know, um, that uh, uh, we want people to perceive us in a certain way, and it doesn't always. It, well, I think that you know certainly we don't uh, we can't control other people's perceptions of ourselves, but then there's this war that happens over. Uh, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but like uh, um, you know how how we're going to perceive each other and who gets to decide, um, you know, uh, 
what's true about each of us individually and and uh, uh that seems to me to be you know related to this this uh uh, uh effort to um uh, to communicate is also to be perceived by other people the way that you perceive yourself internally um or yeah, and and then I've also written about uh, uh, especially in Proust, you know, this this uh, French aristocratic world where all they cared about was uh, how they were perceived, and it didn't matter like if if you were actually a good or bad person, nobody cared. Like they just kind of assumed you had this like hidden evil side that like you know you were doing all these horrible things, but what mattered was like did anybody see it? You know, uh, <laughs> so so there's there's a sort of dance that happens, I guess. Yeah, what you were saying before about before you mentioned the Proust sounds a lot like, um, you know, no exit, mm-hmm. the whole competitive subjectivity thing, where basically everyone is trying to fight mm. for who gets to be the subject and who gets to be the object. Yes. And the people with more power are the subjects who get to make other people the objects. And that's why you have to fight against as a, an existentialist. Wow, that's wonderful. I think that I might uh, have to go back and read this because uh, um, it's something I'm writing about right now also, you know? So what, what right. would allow Isabel, somebody to be the subject? Would it be tapping into your creativity, tapping into that dimension of the Korah and then being poetic out of it, does that allow you to become more a subject because you're more of a creator? I'm just trying to imagine my way into what you just said. I think I think the goal would be to escape that system and maybe Oh, okay. Uh, because you I mean you shouldn't want to basically turn someone else into an object in order that you understand them. Okay. And or does being a subject entail that, at least for Sartre? I think it does in, well, at least for the way I interpret it is that the moment that someone becomes a subject, they become the subject through power. Okay. A hierarchy and how that is established has to do with social norms um, you know, racism, sexism, all of those things. Okay, I wasn't. I, I was on a different whole mm-hmm. level. Yeah, I wasn't but, going that way. Mm-hmm. But the way that you should escape it, I guess, is by knowing yourself. Uh-huh. Because if you know yourself, then you will never feel the urge to engage in this competition between who gets to be the subject and who gets to be the object because you will just who you are yeah okay okay so back to your point alex that you're struggling to express this uh your your advisors are telling you that you're being uh, it's not necessarily my advisors i mean just like some of my readers some of my help very uh kind and helpful readers (laughs) who've commented on my paper yeah but 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 they're concerned that you're being too um waxing too poetic informal informal is i think the word i keep hearing a lot yeah Mm. Mm. meaning you know i don't know i don't know exactly what it is i think i think there is a sense that i'm supposed to be more objective and less uh um i don't know well, subjective, not in the sense yeah. that Isabel was talking about, but in more in terms of an expression of your own feelings, subjective. And especially my open expressions of, um, I don't know if I want to say insecurity, but just like not necessarily having the answer. Like they want, it feels like people want me to uh, come to the table with a very strong argument. This is the reality, and this mm-hmm. is why uh, you should... Uh, buy it you know buy my uh argument about it and that's that's not what i want to do at all like i want to just change my mind from one like from one page to the other and say i said this three pages ago and now i feel like i want to say something else you know <laughs> and i say that on the page and they say well you know this you know really undermines our confidence in you <laughs> it depends what kind of 
of, <laughs> of essay or writing, really. It depends what kind of effect you want to have on the reader. Yeah. And if they think you're mounting some sort of um, measurable argument with facts and data and you can weigh up you know, the arguments, that's one kind of essay. But um, if you're trying to invite the reader into a kind of shared experience that, that you yourself go through and that, that it has some sort of trajectory that's kind of appealing and valuable, maybe what you're doing works for that. Of course, it might not work in this exercise. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, maybe it'll just take some practice to, to, to get it to work. But, uh, you know, I feel like it, there's something um, song-like about it where what I'm trying to express is uh, more an emotional story and the words kind of paint an emotional picture without necessarily having to be argumentative about, you know, describing uh, some kind of objective... Uh, exterior facts well the thing that Mark Jordan said about trying to express the inexpressible mm -hmm. and really in a way what you're talking about mm -hmm. he said ultimately he's come to realize that it's never in the words that he writes or in the sentences that he writes that the argument really can be revealed it's in the spaces between the words and sentences it's in the spaces that are created by those words and sentences so it's like somehow can your words invite people into a nonverbal realization uh that sort of thing what do you think about lacan i don't know him. i mean he like i was just thinking about him this afternoon that like i'm i'm really curious how he managed to pull off like you know becoming this like luminary of, uh, of of philosophy and writing these books that are you, like you can read a page and be like I I mean I have very you know very very smart friends who have taken classes uh, at Columbia and come out saying I have no idea <laughs> what I just read you know uh, <laughs> right, right, right. that's what I've heard about coming to so so I wonder what like what how he managed to pull it off that like he he at least like you know, was able to generate a captive audience for this kind of speaking <laughs> that that apparently expressed meaning in a way that was non-traditional, radically non-traditional. <laughs> well, people say that of um, Derrida and Judith, Judith Butler. Butler. Yeah. Right, but I think the argument that I've heard for them is that they are trying to describe things that we do not have the language for yet. Uh-huh. So you have to be patient and just yeah. try to almost feel oh. what they're saying instead of actually understanding it. Is Lacan part of that same school? I know that Butler and Derrida both came from, I believe, the same college in France, where uh, which is known for teaching a way of writing and speaking that I think is called obscurationism. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making this up or joking. Yeah. No, no. I know you're not making it up. It sounds right because it's so obscure. I mean, I I have spent a good bit of hours and hours with Derrida, and uh, you know, I just get little tiny nuggets that I can kind of use. But and I think he changes his mind from time to time. Yeah. And, you know, I. I just want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so there's another. But I, I don't know about Lacan. There's another interesting uh, uh, point to think about is the difference between like, uh, um, I don't know, pushing people to like work to understand you versus just being incomprehensible. That's that's kind of what I think about uh, Walter Benjamin too. You know, like people find him very very difficult to understand, and I, and my feeling is like maybe he just wasn't thinking very clearly. You know. Uh, yeah, um, and some people also have a similar kind of issue with Zizek. I haven't tried. Um, I haven't tried. Yeah, yeah. But I enjoy the experience of it, like as an aesthetic experience. I find yes. it really fun. <laughs> yeah, I was at a lecture at Harvard where Zizek was lecturing in one of the hall room rooms there, and the room was full, and he came out there and. He's just this manically strange man, and he wrote all kinds of weird diagrams on the blackboard before he began to lecture, and then he started to lecture. The diagrams had absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with anything he said or talked about. Yeah, I love it. It was just, you know, 
it, it was almost more like um, he put himself into a kind of a semi-intellectual trance state and just started to rap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's what it looked like. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what so do you have to say, Isabel? <laughs> um, when I was um, at the visiting days at NYU, I went to a, a class on Derrida with, um, uh, I forgot her name. She's a German professor who's really good friends with Zizek. Uh, It'll come. Um, so it was on Derrida's On Forgiveness, which I have never read. But she was also sort of in this, um, I don't know, a strange lecture mode where she would just walk to the window and she would look outside and she would say, I am sorry it's raining, and then turn around and say, what does that mean? <laughs> And everyone was just quiet. <laughs> yeah. There are limits to that sort of expression as far as I'm concerned. I mean, um, I'm a little bit more old school when it comes to that. Uh, uh, yeah. I've always said I've always said if I if I continue to uh, uh, succeed in an academic path, I want to be one of those kinds of uh, professors who becomes more and more eccentric the more power I get. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge fan of that (laughs) academic tradition. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I you know, I I I gotta say that I, I don't think I would have a lot of patience with that that move it's raining outside what does that mean what a fuck what do you think it means you know i mean i don't know it's sort of like taking every statement you make as if it's an oracular kind of expression and maybe it isn't yeah maybe it's just a statement Shiva, Shiva, Mahadeva, Namah Shiva.